Hi, welcome to Tommy's, the most magical place in the abyss between Chicago and Milwaukee. May I take your order? 50 tokens in a pizza party, please. Coming right up. Please wait in the fun zone. God, I hate working. Oh, uh, hey, Aaron, uh, just so you know, we're running low on confetti blasters in the joy room. God damn, I mean, uh, gosh, nabbit. How's concessions treating you? Uh, it's not terrible. For $7.50 an hour, I could do worse. $7.50. Wow. What? <laughs> well, I'm making seven seventy-five an hour doing security. Well, that's not fair. Well, I don't know. Have you had to throw out any parents who are pi- I mean, peeved off that their kids didn't win the children's equivalent to slots? Well, no. I guess that's worth an extra effigy of George Washington every hour of slave labor we're doing here. Well, hold on. Uh, uh, attention, attention all guests! guests. We, we have, have a winner, winner in the house! house. Donald Black, please come forward to concessions to claim your prize. Tommy the Talking Tiger and his sidekick Snail the Beluga Whale say you're cooler than a cutesy cat in a canoe. Sorry. Nah, it's okay. I should get back on duty anyway. Uh, the musical Magic and Mystery Show is gonna start in a half hour and I have to report to the boss. Oh, shit. I mean, crud. Uh, look, I, uh, I go on break in five minutes. Maybe we could start the podcast then? I should be done by then. I'll see you about back. Tight. Howdy, kids. Welcome to Tommy's Titillating Tiger Train. The musical Magic and Mystery Show will start very soon now. So if you want to hear some great songs and have some serious fun... Head on over to the beautiful band barge and find a seat. Remember, Tommy loves you more than love itself. Charles Sanson had the guillotine already, and Nicholas was put underneath, and it shroop, it was over. Okay. Yes. Uh, the crowd, though, became really angry that the uh, whole thing was over so what? quickly. That's terrible! I know! That's one of the worst things I've ever heard! Uh, right? <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we pick two dead people and talk about their lives. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, James D. Say hi, James. We gotta speed this up. We've only got seven and a half minutes for break. Uh, okay, okay, I'll go as fast as I can. Uh, we hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down these characters from the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that James and I will do our amateurs best to give a basic account of the major events of these people's lives and how they respond to them. <laughs> we also hope to give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're gonna try anyway. So, James, who do we have this week? We have Charles Henry Sanson and Madman Munts. Madman Munts? That sounds crazy to me. Well, I guess we can't go to the history lab, but I guess we could pretend to go to the history lab. Good, good idea. In a world where... Tommy's titillating tiger train is not only a fast-paced slave labor kind of job, it's also a lot of fun. That's right, Tommy. You get to do all kinds of important things. Things like cleaning the soda fountain, eating a snail's famous pizza whale that was rejected because it's too stale, cleaning toilets, and... Researching for a history podcast starring Charles Henry Sanson and Madman Munts. 
These characters are some of the most interesting people alive or dead. What's death, you ask kids? Well, it's when you stop breathing and the life goes out of you. But wait, isn't that what happens when your true love abandons you for a more attractive, richer man? Because you made too many mistakes and you look like an overworked, overeating fruit pie? Ha ha ha! No, snail! That's just last Wednesday! So, James, what's your favorite thing about working at Tommy's Titillating Tiger Train? It's, it's a job. Oh! What about you? Uh, I like seeing kids spend their parents' hard-earned cash on what amounts to gambling. Ah. Hold on, uh, I brought it with us. You brought the whole computer with you? What, what else was I supposed to do? Computer, please bring up Charles Henry Sanson and Madman Muntz. Affirmative, my lord. There we go. Okay. So, uh, James, tell us what Charles Henry Sanson is best known for. Well, Charles Henry Sanson is best known for being the High Executioner of France during the French Revolution. Oh, oh, that sounds like a fun job. A lot of murder. Uh, or executions. Yeah, not quite the same. No. Yeah, uh, depends on where you stand politically with that thing, I suppose. Mm. Mm. So, uh, tell us, what did he look like? Well, we have a couple drawings of him, okay. uh, as well as a couple of video game portrayals. Oh, God. And they're all very different from each other, especially the video game portrayals. So, I, I don't really know. He looks like a somewhat wealthy French man with sad eyes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, so, what is Madman Muntz best known for? Madman Muntz is best known for being one of the best salesmen and marketers in the world. He is also known for being a nut. Uh, oh. Uh, yeah. Did he... What did he look like? He looked like a nut. <laughs> Big, widened eyes and a silly hat. It's actually hard to describe him because the photo I found of him was perf him performing for one of his ads, which were crazy. Oh, his ads? Mm-hmm. His ads. Oh, okay. But let's not talk about him yet. Let's talk about uh, Charles Henry Sanson's early life. Let's... Go! <laughs> okay, Charles Henry Sanson was born in the year 1739. Excellent year. It, it was. Yeah. A good farm year, too. <laughs> uh, unfortunately for uh, little Charlie's life, it goes bad right from the start. Ah. You see, all little Charles ever wanted to do was study medicine and help people. Awesome. Sweet, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it wasn't. Oh, no. You see, Charles was actually born to a family dynasty of professional executioners. Oh, come on. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Wow. So it all started with Charles' great-grandfather, who was also named Charles, who was a soldier in the French army and was then appointed as executioner of Paris in the year 1684. Oh, appointed? So you don't yeah. even, like, apply for this job. You're just, you're going to kill people. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> God. So anyway, then this Charles passed the job down to his son, also named Charles, and then he passed the job down to his son, who was also named Charles. Oh. So our guy, Charles Henry, is fourth in line of a line of professional executioners all named Charles. <laughs> <laughs> which, which proves my hypothesis that if your name is Charles, you are going to be a killer. What? <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, well, we'll see if you're right or not. We'll mm -hmm. see. Okay. Uh, anyway, thankfully, Charles Henry's dad was not just a successful executioner, but was also a successful sperm producer. What the f he and his wife had 16 children. Oh, okay, okay. It's not even a joke. No. <laughs> I didn't mean it as a joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> so Charles Henry was the eldest of the sons, but did not want to become an executioner because he found the whole practice way too bloody and disgusting. And like I said before, all he ever wanted to do was to study medicine. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so things went okay for little Charles Henry at first. Uh, he attended the convent school at Rouen? Rouen? I think so. Rouen? I don't know. I don't know. 
Anyway, he was here for a while until the father of another student recognized Charles Henry as the son of Charles the Head Executioner. Okay. And the family was forced to withdraw Charles Henry in order to save the school's reputation. Oh, okay. Uh, Because although the Head Executioner was somewhat of an important position, not many people liked him. Uh, Understandable. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So little Charles Henry was then privately educated for a while and was still planning on pursuing the study of medicine. Okay. But then fate appeared. Oh, no. Uh, Charles Henry's dad started showing signs of paralysis. What? And the whole family freaked out because they had to keep the family dynasty of professional executioner going. Okay. Uh, Because of this, it was decided that Charles Henry should train to be the next executioner of Paris. (laughs) Train? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) No. I mean, I guess there's probably some, like... Like etiquette, you gotta learn, and it's right. You know, I, uh, I guess, but but get this—he was apprenticed with his father for twenty years. Oh, that's a long time. Yeah, it, it is. But wow. it, I guess it included things like you know knowing how to torture, which weapon to or device to use, oh. how to construct such devices, oh. how to interact with the condemned, etc. Uh, okay, so wait, wait, wait. Yes, he wasn't just an executioner; he was also a torturer. Not. Not officially, okay. but uh, from what I saw, it did look like he was involved with some torturing on the oh, side. That yeah. sucks. Mm. Uh, anyway, during his training at the age of 18, Charles Henry had to help his uncle, who was also named Charles and who was also an executioner. What? So there's two Charleses in the same line? Like, uh, Yeah, well, all of them are named Charles. So it's, all the males are named Charles? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know. Well, but I mean, but this is his <laughs> uncle, Charles. Yes. And his dad's name is Charles. And his dad's dad is Charles, and his dad's dad's dad is Charles. Come on. And, yes. No, no I'm not, not creative at all. <laughs> yes. Okay. Anyway, so he's helping his uncle named Charles. Uh, okay. His uncle had been given the gruesome job of torturing and executing executing Robert Francois Damien. That's uh, Robert Francois Damien. Yes. No, it's not. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Damien, so I, whatever. I'm going to call him Robert because okay. that is his first name. Perfect. So Robert was a French man who was angry about some church thing okay. and ultimately came to the conclusion that it was King Louis XV's fault. Okay, that's vague enough that I'll just yes. let it pass. <laughs> exactly. Um. Uh, so he hid around the Palace of Versailles until Charles XV came back in a carriage. Okay. Robert then rushed past the guards and stabbed the king with a penknife. Wow. The knife penetrated less than half an inch into the oh. king's chest. Okay. Thanks to the king's puffy clothing. <laughs> okay. The king easily survived, but there's kind of a funny story with this. Uh, really? Yeah. That's not, it's not already funny enough? No. Okay. Uh, after being stabbed, the king panicked and clearly thought this was the end for him. So he immediately ordered that a confessor be brought to him. But instead of a priest, his wife, the queen, ran to his side. Uh, king Louis immediately began confessing about his numerous affairs he had with other women. To his wife. Uh, Well, I mean, that's not a bad thing, I guess. No, but then he lived. It took being stabbed. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, Another happy marriage. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, it did not end too well for Robert. Oh, oh, no. He was tried and convicted of attempted regicide and condemned to be drawn and quartered by horses. What? So if you've got a queasy stomach... Just skip a couple seconds. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, this is going to get grim. Yeah, okay. Uh, so before the drawing and quartering, he had to be tortured. So our dude, poor 18-year-old Charles Henry, who only ever wanted to be a doctor, probably had to help his uncle torture and execute Robert. Oh. And this was a very messy process. Oh, yeah, I bet. Yeah. Robert first had his legs compressed and crushed by metal contraptions, Ooh. creatively called boots. Oh, those are, that's creative. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Next, he had rot he- uh, red-hot pincers 
tear away his arm, which he had used to try oh. and stab the king. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, next, sulfur, molten wax, molten lead, and boiling oil were poured onto his wounds. Wow. Not enough. He didn't <laughs> no. even kill him. No, I, I know. Wow. <laughs> Just, yeah. Wow. Uh, Robert was then taken outside where a horse was tied to each of his arms and legs and then made to run in opposite directions, tearing the man apart. Oh. At this point, Robert was still alive. He was still alive? Yes, he was still alive. Oh. So his torso and head were burnt at the stake. Uh, oh. Then his ashes were scattered in the wind, his house was torn down, and all of his family members were forced to change their names. Then his father, wife, and daughter were banished from France. Wow. For a little pen knife? Right. Like, what did they do? <laughs> I know. That's insane. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, the whole ordeal made Charles Henry's uncle so sick of the executioner business that he quit, and now the family business rested completely on our very own Charles Henry Sanson. Okay. And he was sworn into office on December 26th, 1778. Wow. See, that would I would have thought everyone would quit the executioner business after that. Right? Yeah, that's <laughs> Especially insane. when you're 18 years old. That's not even an execution. That's just a game. It that's, is, yeah. That's really gross. Yeah. Mm, mm, okay. Uh, well, we got to keep this thing rolling. Yeah, so what do you say we go to Madman Munce's early life? Okay. All right. Okay. I'm just going to start by saying there's not that much on this guy's childhood that I could find. Though I'm sure someone's written a biography about him somewhere. Um, but I didn't find it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, basically, what I learned was that Munce was born in 1914 in Elgin, Illinois. Woo! Oh. Yeah. His first name is actually Earl. But Madman is so much catchier, I'm going to call him Madman Munce. Yes. Anyway, as a kid, Madman Munce was kind of a genius. Oh, really? Now, remember, it's the 1910s and 20s. We're looking at a man who grew up during World War One, a time when horses were still the main source of transportation and the Titanic was sinking. <laughs> during the whole 10s and 20s? Yep. Oh, again okay. and again and again. <laughs> wow. The whole world of electronics had uh, made great strides at this point. People had electric lights and other electrical amenities of that kind, uh, but those kinds of things still weren't like widely available. Sure. Uh, radios and the like were still in their early stages. Uh, and during World War One, communications were still being delivered by, you know, pigeons and runners and widespread radio use didn't even become a thing thing until the 20s. Oh, wow. Um, but until radio became a medium for, uh, sorry, until radio became a medium for <laughs> advertisements and commercialism, it was mostly restricted to usage on ships. Uh, and even then, it was just Morse code. Well, mysterious. Yeah. So mm. anyway, it's new technology is what I'm saying. Okay. And Madman Munce, at eight years old, really likes it. Uh, really likes it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's 1922, and this whiz kid builds his own radio. Oh, wow. Yeah. Then six years, oh, he was eight, by the way. Oh. Did I say that? I said, <laughs> I know I said did. that. Yeah, he was eight, oh. and he built a radio. Wow. Uh, and then six years go by and he builds a much better radio and retrofits it to his parents' car. Huh. So, yeah, it's 1928 and Madman Munce has actually beaten the market to putting radios in the cars. Wow. Uh, in fact, it would be another two years before an actual car radio would go to the consumer market, selling for today's equivalent of $8,000. Wow. Yeah. Then the Great Depression happened, hmm. which forced Madman Munce to drop out of high school to help his parents run their hardware store. Uh. And so he's just stuck here until 1934, wow. turning 20 before getting into his own work. Yikes. Yeah. But anyway, so he's 20, and using a $500 line of credit, he opens his own used car lot. Hmm. Uh, and he was too young to make <laughs> any sales legally, though, <laughs> so his mother would have to sign all the paperwork. Um, but uh. he has a knack for sales and is actually really successful, running that used car lot for six years. Wow. And then he goes to, on vacation to California. And it's here in California that Muntz makes the discovery that the used car business in the state is actually one of the best there is in the country. Huh. So, what's he to do? I don't know. He uh, packs up and moves to California, <laughs> opening up another used car lot in Glendale. Makes sense. Yeah. So, he's 26, year old, 26 years old and he has two successful businesses. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. 
Um, but that's where we'll leave him, and when we come back, we'll be talking about Madman Munce's adult life. You know, I, I haven't really seen any of the madman in Mr. Munce yet. Oh, but you will, James. Okay. You will. Uh, but I think we should take a break. Uh, very you? short break. Very short uh, we break. We are on break. That's true. We should take a break from this break. <laughs> uh, and when we come back, we'll be talking about Charles Henry Sanson's adult life. And welcome back to We Talk About Dead People. And when we left off, we were talking about Madman Munce's early life. And now we're going to be moving into Charles Henry Sanson's adult life. Would you rather be an executioner or a car's sale man? Car salesman? Car salesman. Car salesman. Car salesman only because it involves cars. Oh. And I like cars. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. But uh, what about you? Is there a difference? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway. uh, So we should just jump into this. (laughs) Okay, go. Okay. Uh, Charles Sanson's adult life. In the year 1778, uh, Charles Sanson is now an official executioner of France. He executed France? Yes, all of France. At least some of France. (laughs) Uh, And this was somewhat of a prestigious position. Oh. Charles earned the titles Gentleman of Paris. (laughs) The Gentleman. Not a gentleman, but the Gentleman. Wow. uh, As well as the Great Sanson. What? Is he a magician? I don't know. Uh, because the head executioner was always kind of a morbid celebrity to the public, he oh, got those names. why? Uh, well, you see, in the days before video games and the NFL, people satisfied their bloodlust by going to the public executions. Oh. Uh, and Charles also got an infamous blood-red coat to wear, uh, which was the sign of a master executioner. You know, I just had to think about that for a second. There was a time, and there was a lot of time, Hmm. where people would go to executions and gladiatorial fights and whatnot just for fun. Yeah. Um, So I just need to put myself into the shoes of these kinds of people. Okay. I mean... I still think people would do that today. I still think people would go to, to gladiator fights and executions for some entertainment today. I yeah. Mean, they kind of do, but I well, guess right. back then it was more of a public thing. Yeah. It's really interesting to see death so trivialized back I know. then. I mean, I guess they were just much more used to it, but nowadays we hate talking about it. Well, yeah, we want to be so removed from the concept of death. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's I don't know. very interesting. Yeah. Well, anyway, so he's got this blood red coat. Yes, which is hilarious. <laughs> okay. There's a drawing of him in this giant <laughs> red coat. Okay. Uh, which is the sign of the master executioner. Okay. So, Charles was the master executioner for an astounding 38 years. Wow. <laughs> During oh. these years, Charles executed a total of 2,918 people. Whoa. So, roughly every five days, he was killing somebody. Whoa. Which reminds me of my New Year's resolution, actually? Oh, wait, 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 what? what? Okay, anyway, no, uh, we uh, gotta move on. Okay. Uh, uh, and look, look what time it is. Aaron, do you know what time it is? World War II! World War II! Uh, actually, no. Uh, but it is time for the French Revolution! Uh, huzzah! Uh, <laughs> huzzah! <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know, a lot of people died during the French Revolution. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and this was good news for an executioner, but bad news for our boy Charles the executioner because he didn't really like killing people. Wait, he didn't like it? No. <laughs> wow, that would suck. We'll get more into that later. Okay. Uh, but anyway, interestingly enough, Charles avoided any kind of political problems himself during the revolution. Okay. Even though he was part of the French government, technically. Okay. But I guess the mob was okay with executioners as long as they were executing enemies of the people. Right. Which is what Charles did. Uh, oh. But before we get to that, we have to talk about a brand new French invention. Oh, okay. The baguette. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. So, uh, this new invention. On April 17th, 1792, a new execution device was tested in Paris. Algebra. (laughs) 
What was it? The guillotine. Oh, huzzah. <laughs> huzzah. <laughs> okay. Uh, being the head executioner, Charles Sanson was summoned to inspect and test the new device to see if it was worthy. Uh, the first test included a bunch of straw bales put under the gu- guillotine, uh, and down came the blade, and swoop, it cut perfectly through the straw bale. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, next, the only logical thing was to bring in live sheep and oh. put them under the guillotine, and down came the blade, and swoop, no more sheepy. Wow. So how do you people still feel now about animal experimentation? <laughs> right? Yeah. Huh? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> but, but we're not done. Do you still approve? <laughs> Okay. Uh, finally, a, a couple of human corpses were brought in, oh, and down God. came the blade, and swoop, now you had two where there was only one before. <laughs> oh, uh, neither that's so morbid. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, uh, this was a depressing episode to write. Okay. Uh, needless to say, Charles really, really liked the guillotine. Why, because it made his job easy? Well, uh, for a couple reasons, actually. Okay. Uh, and it was him who went to the French Assembly and explained to them why it was such a great device. Okay, what was his case? Okay, so first... First of all, the growing number of executions were really putting a strain on Charles. He owned all of his equipment, and lugging these things around all over the streets of Paris was really getting old. How much equipment do you need as an executioner? I don't want to know. Apparently a lot, I (laughs) guess. Any other reasons? Yes. Uh, Number two, the tools that Charles did use were rather light, flimsy, and not prepared to deal with massive amounts of executions. Okay. Not a picture you should be thinking of. No, I'm (laughs) trying not to. Uh, Charles regularly had to deal with weakened or broken tools, and this was just something that an executioner should not have to deal with. No! No. Uh, and number three, the old way of executions took a lot of time. Of course. Hanging, drawing, and quartering, and beheading all took longer than the guillotine and could go wrong more easily. Mm. Charles explained that the condemned victims also tended to resort more to depression, escape, or suicide when waiting to be executed in a way that could very easily go wrong and would certainly take a long time. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. It does. Well, I mean... But uh, hang on. Wait. Yeah. I thought the reason they did, like, drawing and quartering and stuff like that was because of the spectacle of it. I mean, it had to be, right? Right, and for the, the for how horrible a crime the, was. The torment. So, yeah. are, do they really replace all those ex- execution methods with the guillotine? Yeah, everything wow. else was banned. But... That's actually strangely humane. Well, yeah, and I'm getting to that. So, okay. uh, number four, further, contrary to modern depictions, the guillotine was actually a much more humane way of executing somebody than the other procedures of that day and age, mm. which is just what you were saying. Like, when we think of the guillotine, we think of, you know, Halloween. I used to have a neighbor who would put a fake guillotine up in his yard. Oh, man. Every Halloween. Wow. But it was actually very humane. Uh, mm-hmm. Although jams did happen, and sometimes it did take a few goes to actually fully cut through the neck, this was all still better than things like beheading with an axe, being burned at the stake, or long sessions of torture. Yes, I agree. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, and number five, finally, Charles preferred the guillotine to the sword for decapitation because swords reminded him of the privileges that the Parisian nobility had. Wait, what? Well, explain that. Okay, so... <laughs> uh, Paris nobles would often carry uh, swords, not necessarily for defense or whatever, just as a symbol of, you know, how rich they are. Right. And if you had to use a sword to decapitate someone, you might feel like an aristocrat. And aristocrats were not liked at this time. Right. Oh, that's right. Okay. okay. Yes. Uh, so eventually, on March 23rd, 1792, the guillotine was accepted as standards standard means for execution. Perfect. Uh, in fact, the National Assembly outlawed all methods of execution in France except for the guillotine. Wow. Yeah. That's a big step, really. It is. Yeah. Okay. It, yeah. So uh, Charles Sanson had, has gone down in history as one of the first people to advocate for the guillotine and also as the first executioner to use it. Okay. Uh, the first person to ever be executed by the guillotine was a man by the name of Nicolas Jacques Pelletier. Nicholas was a highwayman who worked with a gang of thieves in Paris. 
One night, Nicholas attacked a passerby and stole his wallet. Okay. But there's actually some speculation as to what this encounter was like. Some people said Nicholas also killed the man. Others said rape. Others said just assault. Wow. Uh, but whatever it was, the guy died, and a nearby guard heard the screams and caught Nicholas. What? Right so he he died. He actually died. Yes. Wow. Uh, so Nicholas was taken to court, convicted, and sentenced to death by decapitation by guillotine. The only problem? Well, the guillotine wasn't actually built yet. Oh, no! <laughs> so Nicholas had to wait three months in jail for the guillotine to be finished. Wow! I'm yeah. surprised they didn't just off him. You I know. know. Yeah. Uh, so once it was finished, the guillotine was painted red. Of and course. was placed on top of some scaffolding outside of the Hotel, Hotel de Ville in Paris. Hmm. Uh, there was some concern as to crowd control, though. Of course. Authorities thought that a ton of people would come to see the guillotine be first used, so National Guardsmen were positioned around the square. Wow. Uh, the execution occurred on April 21st, 1792. 21st? 25th. 25th. Okay, I'm sorry. 1792 at 3.30 in the afternoon. Okay. Nicholas was led to the scaffolding, and sure enough, there was a massive crowd ready to see the action. Ah, oh, humans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Charles Sanson had the guillotine already, and Nicholas was put under and it shroop it was over okay yes uh the crowd though became really angry that the uh, whole thing was over so what? quickly that's terrible no that's one of the worst things i've ever heard uh, right <laughs> so they began just chanting that it, it wasn't entertaining enough what and they also started chanting bring back our wooden gallows <laughs> Come on. Thankfully, the gallows were not brought back. Oh, good. Uh, Charles had his way, and the guillotine stayed in order. Perfect. Uh, but anyways, the French Revolution is still going on during this whole time, and lots of people start being executed. Now, let me ask. Yes. Um, do you? Could you give us, like, a brief... Uh, introduction to the French Revolution. Oh, geez. Okay, I don't really remember all the different parties. But basically what, what happened with the French Revolution is people were not happy with the king and queen, and which I'll get into a little later. Okay. Uh, and so there was a rebellion, and then there was a rebellion against that rebellion, <laughs> and then there was a rebellion against that rebellion. Wow. And basically everyone would just kill the leaders of the, the previous rebellion. Okay. And it became a really bloody affair, kind of a reign... Well, there's a part of it called the Reign of Terror where just... Everyone was being bad. Wow. Yeah, really messy. Uh, a lot of bad things happen. And what ended up happening, uh, funny enough, with the French Revolution is that it paved the way for Napoleon to take uh, charge in the early 1800s. Oh. Uh, which was exactly what the revolutionaries did not want, was this tyrant right. who would, you know, kill all of the young men. <laughs> they just spent too much time, you know, screwing around executing well, people. Exactly. That's pretty much what happened. Yeah. But oh. it's a really complicated affair. Okay. Uh, thankfully, the American Revolution went slightly better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. Uh, so anyway. What's so, Charles up to during this French Revolution? Well, he had his hands busy doing the whole thing. <laughs> I bet he did. Oh, man. Uh, he executed a whole bunch of people in the successive waves of revolutions and power changes. He executed George, Georges Danton, who was actually one of the guys who led the first revolution, but then was turned against in the subsequent revolutions. Uh, basically, nobody was safe, okay. which is what I was saying earlier. Uh, 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 except Charles Sanson, apparently. He was fine. Because he was the executioner. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. Right. <laughs> Sanson also executed Maximilian Robespierre. I'm going to butcher all of these names. That's fine. <laughs> it's totally fine. Uh, this guy was also involved with the revolution and was then shot and then decapitated. <laughs> <laughs> what? Hang on. I thought all other methods of execution were banned. Uh, yes, he was shot by someone, uh, I think a revolutionary. Oh. And okay. then he was, you know, a doctor took care of him for his execution. 
<laughs> okay. It's messed up. Okay, yeah. And all these people are really important people. I just didn't want to go into them too much. Okay. Uh, so Charles also executed Louis Antoine de Saint-Just, who was one of the main guys be behind the justly called Reign of Terror, oh. which ended when he lost his head. Okay. Charles also executed Jacques Hebert, who was a radical editor and founder of the newspaper Le Pere Duchesne. Duchesne? Duchesne? Duchesne. I, I don't know. Uh, France. <laughs> French isn't a real language. France isn't a real place. No. It's, <laughs> it's like Narnia. <laughs> Narnia of Europe. Uh, okay. uh, Charles also executed Camille Desmoulins. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even. Desmoulins. De I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? De me. I don't. We're gonna we're we're gonna peeve off all over French <laughs> listeners. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Okay. So this guy was a journalist and politician. Blah blah blah. Uh, anyway, all these executions were done by guillotine. Okay. But these guys were actually not the most famous uh, people that Charles killed. That's surprising. Uh, Charles is best remembered for being the executioner of King Louis the Sixteenth of France. This is a, is this a different Louis from the one who was stabbed with a penknife? Uh, that was the fifteenth. Okay, this is the sixteenth. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's these French names. Like, all the kings, just Louis. All the... All the uh, all, yes, anyway. All the girls, Camille. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so go ahead. Anyway, the story of Louis the Sixteenth and the French Revolution is long and complicated, but here are the basics. Okay. Uh, king Louis was king of France before the revolution, and France was not doing well. Oh, you don't say. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people were poor and hungry and angry. Mm. Uh, Louis refused to reform the monarchy into a constitutional monarchy, which is what all the countries around them were, were doing. Right. Okay. Uh, uh, and he also tried to escape into Austria. <laughs> okay. He and his wife were uh, caught, though, and sentenced to death what? for treason. Oh, okay. They kind of saw the running to Austria as a, you know, you're working with the Austrian monarchs. Oh, I see. Marars? Marars. 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 I always have trouble with that word. So <laughs> uh, the butterfly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Don't eat monarch no. butterflies, people. They're poisonous. Okay, yeah. I think. Good, good info. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, our boy Charles Sanson was given the task of executing King Louis the Sixteenth. Okay. Interestingly enough, though, Charles was very concerned about the whole ordeal. Huh. Charles was not a supporter of the monarchy, but he was very reluctant to kill a king. Oh. For no head executioner of France had ever had to kill their own king before. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bunch of firsts, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> oh. uh, but killing the king brought on its own stress. I bet. <laughs> First of all, to refuse doing this would bring shame to the Sanson family. And Charles would also have to face the mob. Of course. <laughs> uh, which would not end well for him. Uh, definitely not. <laughs> uh, but going forward with the execution, on the other hand, would mean that rescue attempts might happen, which of course would put Charles in danger. Mm, I see. Yes. But the city officials were aware of this danger, so on the day of the execution, January 21st, 1793, troops were positioned lining all the streets that Louis, that King Louis' carriage would come down. Okay. The carriage ride took two freaking hours. Oh, <laughs> that would be the longest I carriage know. ride. Oh. Uh, and after King Louis got uh, got to the spot, he was marched up to the scaffolding to the guillotine. Uh, then Charles cut off the king's hair so that it would the, the hair would not impede with the beheading. Okay. Uh, Louis then addressed the crowd and was reportedly very calm and dignified. Okay, good for him. Yeah. Uh, he, deliver, he delivered a short speech in which he pardoned those who were responsible for his death and claimed that he was innocent of any crime. Man, that's the high road. Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, the king wanted to say more, but before he could, the National Guard started their drum roll and drowned oh. out the king's words. Man, they really don't like him. No. Okay. Uh, so King Louis XVI was then quickly led to the guillotine and beheaded. Oh. Charles then picked up the head and presented it to the crowd. Oh. Uh, there are several different accounts on the king's death. Some say the blade had to be dropped several times to sever the neck the whole way, but this is unlikely. I don't like that story. No. Mm -mm. Others say that the king let out a blood-curdling scream after the blade hit, but this is probably impossible because his spine would have been severed. Okay. Uh, anyway, but Charles himself in his journal said that the king had bravely met his fate. Well, I trust him. I do too. He yeah. seems like a good guy. Yeah. Uh, the Queen Marie Antoinette was soon also executed. Ah. Uh, however, she was not executed by Charles Sanson, but was instead executed by his son, Henry Sanson, <laughs> and not a Charles. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yes. Uh, so Henry Sanson, his, his son, was apprenticed to him. Uh, the Queen was killed by the guillotine, and her last words were reportedly, Pardon me, sir, I meant not to do it, after she accidentally stepped on Henry's foot. Oh, what a lady. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Manners to the end. Yes. Okay. Now, speaking of Charles' son, let's talk a bit about his personal life. Oh, boy. That is Charles, our guy. Okay. Uh, do you remember how Charles never wanted to be an executioner, actually wanted to be a doctor? Yes, and I'm depressed for remembering yes. it. <laughs> well, he continued to study medicine, and would often take home the bodies of those he executed. What? He would dissect these bodies. What? Uh, mm. For medical purposes. But he, he was allowed to do this, of course. Yes, criminal bodies were allowed for medical dissection. Okay. Yes. So there's nothing real scummy going on. Not really. Okay. And at uh, this time, anatomy is still not really well known. Yeah. It's, documenting it. Or... I, I don't, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for some reason, I feel like they were, they were making those compendiums or whatever of the human body. I, yes. And the information wasn't widely available. Something like that. I don't know. We'll go with that. that that's interesting. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm just speculating. Well, I know there was some work on the Renaissance, which was earlier, but I, I think you're right, too. I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> Medical history is a... Is a I don't know. Yeah. It's a dark pool. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, so he also was a gardener and grew herbs, 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 <laughs> the stupid age. He grew herbs that he would use as various medicines. Oh, interesting. He also played the violin and cello. Oh. Uh, and one of his best friends was Tobias Schmidt, who was a German maker of musical instruments and also later built the guillotine for Charles. <laughs> Which is such a great friendship. <laughs> so hey, Charles, come on over. I got something for you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, Charles, Charles was also married and had two sons <laughs> named Gabriel and Henry who would continue with their father's trade. Just imagine that first date. So what do you do? Oh, I, <laughs> I kill people. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, Gabriel, the eldest son, actually died after an execution. What? And he wasn't the one being executed. He, he was helping his father, and Gabriel picked up the decapitated head, presented it to the crowd, and then slipped off the scaffolding and fell to his death. Whoa! How high, how high was that scaffolding? I, it's pretty high. I mean, okay. the whole crowd has to be able to see it, I guess. Right. Yeah. Mm. I guess it's how you land, not so much the height. That's true. Okay. So the family job then went on to the younger son, Henry, who was a successful soldier. Henry succeeded his father as head executioner in August of 1795. He remained executioner for 47 Whoa. years. Uh, and like I said earlier, it was Henry who guillotined the Queen Marie Antoinette. Man. Henry's son, also named Henry Sanson, would also become head executioner and would be the last in a line of six-generation Sanson family dynasty of executioners. Wow. <laughs> six generations. Okay. <laughs> 
Uh, but anyway, back to Charles Sanson. Eventually, the goer of the job got to Charles, and he eventually passed the job down to his son. Mm -hmm. Charles rarely enjoyed his work as executioner, even though he executed almost 3,000 people. Wow. Uh, he sometimes became depressed from his work and had quite a bit of an internal struggle, which is not surprising. Not at all. No. Uh, he also kept a diary in which he lamented the fact that his job was necessary. Interesting. Uh, he was also very angry with the public because they did not understand executions. Charles hmm. said that if the crowd could truly experience the terror of the victims, then the popularity for executions would plummet. That's actually, that makes sense. I know. Uh, Charles was seen as a very humane man uh, who would often try to talk with or encourage the victims right before their execution and, uh, and making sure that there was no unnecessary pain or suffering. Wow, that's, you know, because I'm certain, certain there are executioners out there who actually enjoyed it. Exactly. And would probably, you know, try to piss people off or scare the hell out of them. For sure. Well, and I read an, an article about that. That's how everyone viewed executioners, kind of like as these, like, unhuman, satanic figures. Who wow. Just, and that was not Sanson. He, he was nice to people. He made sure things were quick and painless. He was a professional. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, another funny story, though, is <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Charles actually met the Napoleon uh, later on in life. Wow. Uh, Napoleon asked Charles if he could still sleep after executing, like, 3,000 people. And Charles responded by saying, if emperors, kings, and dictators can sleep well, why shouldn't an execution? Oh, man! <laughs> yeah. Oh, laying what down some bird. shade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, but it does seem that he he uh, did struggle internally. Yeah, like, well, who wouldn't? Yeah. Mm. Uh, but that about sums it up for his adult life. Well, that's that's good. Yeah. And I think that's a good place to take another break from this break. I, I agree. Yeah. All right. Break so, squared. When we come back, we'll be talking about Madman Munce's adult life. Welcome back to We Talk About Dead People, and when we left off, we were talking about Charles Henry Sanson's adult life, and now we're going to be moving over into Madman Munce's adult life. Let's find the mad in this story. Yeah, we're going to find it. Okay. Just get ready. Uh, so we, when we left Madman Munce, he was in California selling used cars, and he's doing extremely well, too, thanks to his charismatic nature and customer-centered attitude. It's 1940, and he hasn't been sent to fight in a war, and the cash is just pouring in. Nice. Yeah, but one day, he comes upon a weird situation. A whole bunch of cars had been built to be sold in Asia, but couldn't be delivered because of, you know, World War II! Oh my gosh! <laughs> now, these vehicles were straight up brand new. Okay. Steering wheel on the right side, stellar vehicles. Okay. One of these cars is a custom Lincoln built for, I'm going to mispronounce this, but I think it's just Chiang Kai-shek, is that right? Sure. <laughs> okay, who was literally the supreme leader in China at the time, in case you didn't know. Ooh, not a good time to be the leader of China. <laughs> nope, not fun, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, my favorite thing about this guy is I, I clicked on him, uh, I clicked on Kai-shek's uh, Wikipedia page uh -huh. just to see what he was all about. He's smiling in his official portrait, which you just don't see. No. Yeah, he's not looking serious at all. He's smiling. It's kind of yeah. cool. All world leaders look like, you know, they just murdered a puppy. Yeah. <laughs> kind of do. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so back to Madman Months. Uh, he gets the press in on this story about these uh, these exotic cars. These, okay, right? yeah. Um, and publicity skyrockets. Huh. Um, all the local newspapers wanted to do a story on this car. And within two weeks, all of the cars were sold, still in the shipping crates they were packed into wow. Asia. Asia. Uh, with this boon, Madman Munts sold his lot in Elgin, Illinois, and opened a second cars bi car business in L.A. Mm. Yeah. So now let's talk a little bit about why Madman Munts had such a serious knack for selling cars. Okay. Uh, the thing about Madman Munts is that he was a 
master in the art of marketing. Hmm. Now, it's no secret that used car salesmen are not often trusted by customers. Right. And Madman Months knew this, hmm. uh, probably better than anyone else at the time. Uh, at this time, uh, the strategy that most used car salesmen uh, you know, were using to dispel any worries about shady dealings and or rip-offery uh, uh -huh. was to project a very professional and calm manner during sales. Okay. Right? So they didn't want you to be, like, overly friendly. They didn't want to be like, oh, welcome to my lot. Let me sell you a car here. You know, they didn't right. want to do anything like that. Okay. Um, any excess of nicety or charisma might have come off as a trick and could scare customers off. So very diplomatic. Yes. Okay. Uh, but Muntz thought about this a little bit and came to the conclusion that publicity is better for business than just about anything. Okay. Yeah. So basically what he does is he turns himself into a kind of joke about charismatic salesmen. <laughs> Yeah, he starts calling himself a madman in his ads, in, <laughs> on his billboards and TV commercials. And at first it starts subtle where it's like, oh, you'd have to be mad to sell a car at this price. <laughs> but it evolves, and it evolves swiftly indeed. Uh, one particular ad stands out at the, at the, uh, as the moment where Madman Muntz actually became a madman. And what is that ad? On television, Muntz appeared in a commercial where he was carrying a sledgehammer walking around his used lot. Okay. He stops by one car and announces that if he didn't sell it that day, he would smash it with the sledgehammer. <laughs> uh, of course, nobody bought the car because it was a piece of, uh, it, it was... Well, it was a bad car. <laughs> so he appeared on TV later in the day and smashed the car before viewers oh, everywhere. That's amazing. And these ads are a complete hit. Right. Uh, unfortunately, the ones available on YouTube and other places like it are kind of boring, mostly animated stuff, singing about how great Muntz is. Okay. Uh, anyway, they were apparently so crazy. Uh, well, actually, I should say something about that. Yeah. Um, those animated ones, right. uh, Muntz didn't like. Oh. And later on, he, he got more involved with the ads and made them more geared toward his character. And was he usually in the uh, in the ads yeah, himself? Yeah, he was usually in the in the ads after that. So he's made himself into a meme. Yeah, basically, <laughs> he's turned himself into a meme. Wow. So uh, anyway, uh, these ads were so crazy that people actually started visiting Muntz's lot as a tourist attraction, oh. and to see if Muntz was just as mad as he looked on TV. And guess what? Um, uh, spaghetti is insane. <laughs> well, it is, uh, but. Muntz's lot is ranked in 1946 as the seventh best tourist attraction in Southern California. Yeah, Whoa. a used car lot. Wow. Uh, one hilarious little anecdote that uh, occurred during the McCarthy era. era um, oh, McCarthy. Yes, when Tail Gunner Joe was out rooting out communists in the government, Muntz quipped, do you think I'd make it to the front pages if I joined the Communist Party? <laughs> <laughs> Which, yes, yes, he would. Probably. Um, uh, everybody go listen to the Joe McCarthy episode. It's great. Yes. Anyway, so <laughs> in 1948, a new sports car is release called the, the Curtis Craft Sport. Hmm. And they're really exclusive. Only 36 were sold in the two years they were on the market. Oh, wow. Anyway, Muntz likes them a lot. So he buys the manufacturing license and changes the car name to the Muntz Jet. Nice. Yeah. Muntz makes some changes, turning the two-seater car into a four-seater, and he gave it a more powerful engine. The car looked vaguely futuristic, so it was put on the cover of Popular Science in 1951. <laughs> wow. Uh, the back seat contained a fully stocked and operational cocktail bar. Uh, what? what? <laughs> what? <laughs> it did. Well, that's uh, amazing. And this car, just like you if you're sitting in the back seat, could go 125 <laughs> miles per hour. Whoa. And it could go from zero to 50 in six seconds, Whoa. depending on how strong your cocktail was. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't making much money, so production ceased, and the car immediately became a rare collector's item. But they're still out there. Yeah, they're still out there, oh, man, which I is pretty cool. Um, but Muntz doesn't want to work in cars his whole life. Who would? Yeah. So he made plans to start selling televisions in 1946. Mm -hmm. Now, a little 
all about TVs in the 40s. They were huge and terribly expensive. The smallest, cheapest consumer television had a three-inch screen Whoa. and cost over $2,000 in today's money. Oh, yeah, gosh. but Muntz wanted to do better and invented a process known as Muntzing. Ah. Muntzing is basically intense simplification of electrical equipment, or just about anything for that matter. Okay. His goal was to find the absolute minimum number of components required to build a functional television at the lowest cost. Hmm. He would often go up to his engineers with wire cutters and just start snipping out parts of their prototypes <laughs> until the devices stopped working. Then he'd say, put that back in and walk away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Muntz was able to Muntz his television sets down to a good price, just under $500 in today's money, hmm. which, if you'll note, is literally a quarter of what a three-inch screen piece of junk cost back yeah. then. And it had a bigger screen. Oh, really? 14 inches. Oh, wow. Isn't that crazy? I we, mean, you know, yes. talk about innovation. Wow. <laughs> what were you going to say? Uh, well, just this whole Munsing thing. Mm -hmm. He needs to become a politician. Yes, <laughs> yes he does. <laughs> just trim uh, away all the fat from the U.S. government. Uh, anyway. See, you're a libertarian. <laughs> So anyway, to market his new consumer-friendly television, Muntz started appearing in TV ads again as a nutcase to market his televisions. Uh, he appeared dressed in red long johns and a Napoleon hat, and his tagline was, I want to give him away, but Mrs. Muntz won't let me. She's crazy! <laughs> wow. <laughs> there were some more lame ads, but this time, like I said before, Muntz got after his advertisers and made them include his madman persona in their ads. Hmm. And, one, and one he just shouts out of nowhere, Stop staring at your radio! <laughs> I thought it was a TV what? ad because people would like sit with their radio and look at it, right? Yeah. Stop staring at your radio! Oh, I gotta use that. Um, he also did this amazing thing where he sent television knobs to possible customers uh, with a note saying, call us and we'll show up with the rest of the set. <laughs> uh, so with wow. the combination of his excellent engineering, marketing, and pricing, the television was an incredible success. Yeah. Now, interesting to note, these televisions worked great in cities and urban areas, but not too great out in the country. Hmm. Of course, Muntz had thought of this. People in urban areas had to worry about money more, so people in urban areas bought more of these televisions than people in the country. Got it. Right. So uh, his company made nearly half a billion dollars in today's <laughs> wow. dollars, and in 1952, <laughs> on these televisions alone. Uh, another interesting thing is that Muntz popularized the abbreviation TV. Oh, really? One of his marketing... He didn't invent it, but he popularized okay. it. One of his marketing stunts involved hiring skywriters to spell out his ads among the clouds. <laughs> of course. Uh, but, yeah, but television was such a long word that it became a mess before the pilot could finish the job. <laughs> Actually, be television. <laughs> yeah, yeah so that's he, right. <laughs> so he just wrote months TV in the sky, and then he wow. named his daughter TV. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. But it wasn't to last. Muntz had a bad year in 1953, you know, literally one year after doing this, yeah. uh, and lost his company. Oh, what wow. happened? Not sure. Oh. Sales went bad for some reason, I guess, but Muntz would not be stopped. And then he invented something called the four track. Hmm. Now, up to this point in time, the only way you could listen to music in your car was by installing an actual record player or buying one <laughs> wow. of those in-car radios. Yeah. Uh, problem with this is that whenever you hit a pothole or a bump or something, the record would bounce off the turntable. <laughs> uh, so they weren't too popular. Yeah. And there was a system that was supposed to keep that from happening by a adding extra pressure to... Uh, sure. 
whatever that is, the, the needle. Mm-hmm. Um, but it ripped up records. So nobody wanted it. Oh, man. Um, so Muntz designs this thing called the Auto Stereo, which is a device that played his four-track cartridges. Nice. Um, they could play a whole album. Oh. And the four-track is essentially the predecessor to the eight-track, um, mm. but it's a little bit more fragile in its build quality. And only half as um, much. Yeah. Uh, he, <laughs> he had it manufactured in Japan, which kept costs down, and marketed with some very sexualized ads. Huh. Most of them were just hot women sitting or leading or otherwise lounging around in cars with the equipment on display. Not much has changed. Yeah, <laughs> really, though. Um, so people really liked four tracks because they didn't have ads and they could rewind the tapes. Nice. Yeah, it's a really convenient device. Yeah. Anyway, it sold for about a grand in today's money and became really popular. Hmm. Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin bought some, so that added to the publicity. <laughs> yes. Anyway, this dude named Bill Lear, who owned Learjet, started putting them on his planes, <laughs> uh, but eventually decided the system could be improved and invented the 8-track, which ah. provided better auto- audio quality and didn't break as much. Yeah. Uh, so the foreground falls into the background and eventually dies. Oh. <coughs> so what's a guy to do? Um, I don't know. Home video. Oh. In 1970, Muntz closed his four-track company after a fire destroyed the main office. Oh, jeez. Uh, and starts doing research and experimentation to make it possible to play movies in the home. Huh. So he basically invents a home projector, and the thing just takes off. It's seven years. Uh, in seven years, it's a multi-million dollar business, and he starts investing in technology called the Technicolor Compact Video Cassette, uh, um, which was competing with Betamax and VHS. I've seen all of these things in museums. Yeah. Isn't that kind of cool? <laughs> yeah. Uh, now... We all know how this story ended, though. Uh, VHS won. Mm. Uh, Muntz closed his home video business in the early 80s. And wow. that's where we're going to leave Mad Mad Muntz. Uh, Mad 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 Muntz for now. And when we come back, we'll be talking about his end and death. Break! <laughs> all right. What are you two doing out here? There's work to be done and the show's about to start. Uh, we were on break. Break. Of course. You millennials are always I, on break. Come on, that's not fair. Come back inside. Fine. Well, hey, kids! Who's ready for some fun? I am! Awesome! I'm Tommy the Talking Tiger. He's Snail the Beluga Whale. We're here for fun and pizza. Give your money or go to jail. Cause it's good times on the tiger train. There's no sadness and no mental pain. Your depression will not be cured, but with this song it can be endured. Take a break from your boring life. Come and sing with us, forget your strife. The ones you love, the life you live, will be forgotten and fade like a wisp of smoke in the darkness of night. Cause it's good times on the tiger train There's no sadness, no mental pain Your depression will not be cured But with this song it can be endured (laughs) That tiger, James, he, he understands Oh, for Pete's sake No, no, James, for real this time Uh, I need to go what about work? Uh, work can wait. Uh, I need some time alone. Lord History might fire you! I don't care, James! I'll be back! Aaron, c- come on! Well, I guess I better cover for him. Well, looks like it's closing time. My job's just beginning. Being a night guard at this place looks like a it's just a piece of cake. Who's gonna want to break into a place filled with animatronic animals and black magic? What the? Who's there? 
What the? Hark? James, it's just me. Stop freaking yourself out. Okay, great. You doing okay? Uh, yeah. We should finish the podcast. All right, let's just do it. Roland? Yes. Welcome back to We Talk About Dead People. And when we left off, we were talking about Madman Munce's adult life. And now we're going to be talking about the executioner, Charles Henry Sanson's end and death. He is not executed. Good. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So Charles Henry Sanson died on July the 4th. Hooray, America! Doggone it. How old was he when he died, okay. James? Uh, so he died on July 4th, 1806, at the age of 67. Okay. He is buried with his family in Paris. Okay. And he's remembered for being the key executioner during the French Revolution and executing King Louis XVI. He's also remembered for being the key instigator behind the guillotine being implemented as the primary method of execution. Okay. So that's that's a good thing. Okay. It's a step towards hu- humanity. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, so he's actually uh, he's actually been portrayed in quite a b- bit of media, including novels, films, TV shows, video games, and manga. Oh, that's how you say it, right? Yeah, manga? it's manga. Yeah. Manga. I don't know. Uh, so he was actually played by Christopher Lee in the film Le Revolution Francois. <laughs> Francis. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, he's also portrayed in Assassin's Creed Unity. Okay. Um, is yeah. he portrayed accurately? I, I don't even know. Okay. <laughs> uh, and the Japanese manga, 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 uh, entitled Innocent, has nine volumes and covers Charles' life. Is it like... It's all about him. Is it true? Or is it just made, all made up? Uh, some of it's true, some of it's made up. Okay. That's is what I, I saw. Huh. Okay. Uh, so that's about it for Charles Henry Sanson. All right. Well, let's just move right over into... <laughs> Madman Muntz's end in death. Okay. And so when we left Muntz, his VHS business had failed, but he was still doing well financially. Right. Has to do with being, you know, almost a billionaire. A genie. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so after the failure of his home video system, he got into cell phones oh. and motorhomes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The motorhome business was called Muntz Motor Mansions, oh, which gosh. I think is great. Around 1985, he started selling a cell phone for under $1,000, over two grand today. Hmm. Uh, but just like that, Muntz had, uh, but just like Muntz had done with his televisions, this was wildly cheaper than what the other sellers had. Yeah. Uh, in fact, next to his Hitachi, Hitachi cell phone, the next cheapest device was over $7,000 in today's money. Whoa. So this made him the most successful cell phone salesman in LA. Wow. Uh, but anyway, so near the end of his life, he had a television installed into the dash of his Lincoln Continental. Uh, he claimed it made him drive better. <laughs> uh, but his success proved to be his last. Oh, no. Uh, in eight, 1987, uh, Mad Mad Muntz met with that dragon called lung cancer and passed away. Uh. Now, a little on his legacy. Madman Muntz was made famous by acting crazy, and hmm. a lot of people wanted to copy this strategy. Right. Uh, there was a guy who did it named Crazy Eddie who lived in New York <laughs> uh, who basically started doing exactly what Muntz did. Uh, okay. Yeah, but he yeah. became so popular uh, that he actually got cast in a movie. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Um, so there are a couple of movies about... I've Ma- seen that. Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, there are a couple of movies about him, and he's been inducted into the Consumer Electronics Hall of Fame, <laughs> which I didn't know existed. Neither did I. <laughs> but I, I guess it's a thing. All so right. There you go. Goals. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, uh, I guess I should go home now. Uh, you're not getting paid to be here. <laughs> Why'd you leave earlier? Um, that was something I had to oh, do. Yeah, more cocaine. No, no, not cocaine. A harder drug. A tougher drug. Heroin. No, what the devil do you take me for? I had to call my mom. You you called your mom? You haven't talked to her in years. I know. What made you do that? I needed a mom. I needed my mom. Everything okay? Yeah, things are good now. Good. 
You want to make a pizza? Good idea. Oh, this is going to be awesome. Oh, yeah, I'm so dang hungry right now. What was that? Did you hear that? It came from the stage. Give me your flashlight. What the? Uh-oh. Tommy's gone. Snail the beluga whale, too. Thieves. Come on, James, let's investigate. No footprints, no drag marks. Look at this. Is that what I think it is? Paw prints. James. Do, do you think? Surely it's not possible. No. <laughs> that couldn't be. That's unthinkable. Oh, no. Don't worry, Aaron. We can handle this. Yeah, a taser's gonna stop a possessed animatronic tiger. Would you stop it? It's probably just a couple of vandals screwing around. Come on. Well, look what the cat tracked in. Tracked in. Tracked in. James, I told you Tommy is alive! Oh my god. Y y y you boys are awfully naughty being around here after hours. It's my job to be here. It's not you, James. It's your friend. You are violating Tiger Law by bringing an unwelcome guest into the building after closing time. Hey, I work here too. I'm afraid your souls must be committed to the deep. Pity. J James, where is Snail the Beluga Whale? Uh, I don't. Ah, oh, he turned off the lights! Oh no, it's getting closer! Screw this, let's get out of here! Oh! Aaron, get up, come on! Just leave me! Leave me! Well, kids, I think it's about time to bring the show to an end for today! Feel free to send all your hate mail to We Talk About Dead People Podcast at gmail.com! We will read all of it and not along. If you hate us, you're probably right. If you like us, though, please consider funding the show by becoming a patron on Patreon.com. That's Patreon.com slash We Talk About Dead People. Even as little as a dollar, as much as it costs to pay. Helps tremendously. Our cover art was created by the extremely gifted Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his phenomenal work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. With all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of imminent death by a beluga whale play you out. The millennial, the millennial, the millennial bug the millennial, the millennial, the millennial. <laughs>